Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Joelton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we could have this time together. We are continuing our look at the Gospel of Mark. In this Gospel, Jesus is presented as Lord. And today's lesson, we are looking at Jesus as the Lord of life. And our text comes from Mark chapter 5. We'll be looking at verses 21 through 43. In this section of Scripture, Jesus encounters a woman who has a, a physical need. She has a problem with an issue of blood that has plagued her for years. And we also see Jesus raising a young girl from the dead. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have to teach us. We ask that you would be with us today as we study this scripture, that you would illuminate it to our hearts in your name. Amen. The theme of today's lesson, Jesus demonstrates that he is the Lord of life, that because of him, a new life is possible for those who would have no hope. Now, as we look at today's scripture, what we see is that Jesus' public ministry is flourishing. He's attracting crowds everywhere he goes. He is healing. He's casting out demons. Everything seems to be going well. But Jesus is also attracting opposition from the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the Herodians. And they ask several key questions to demonstrate this opposition. They ask, who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus had told the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And this was something they could not accept. They also asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? They asked, why don't your disciples fast like the disciples of John and the Pharisees? And finally, they asked, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And so from these questions, we see that Jesus is not the Messiah that they had expected. Jesus' ministry is not what they expected. In fact, the opposition had become so fierce, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they had begun plotting how they would kill Jesus. Now, Jesus has been telling them from the very beginning, the kingdom of heaven is here. He is saying, in me, through me, God has fulfilled the promise that he made long ago. God has fulfilled the covenant that he set up with Abraham and then with the people of Israel. God has set up his kingdom on this earth. And Jesus was telling them, I am the Messiah, the anointed one. I am the king who was to come. This is the gospel, the good news. But Jesus had to teach them what this meant. Everything that Jesus does is designed to reveal to them this new kingdom. In this kingdom, Satan's power is broken. The sick are healed. Demons are cast out. Deaf people hear. Those who are mute are able to speak. The paralyzed walk. We see all of these ways in which God's kingdom is being realized on earth. But parts of this new kingdom are hard for the people to accept. There are aspects that they never expected or anticipated. 
This is a kingdom where tax collectors and sinners are welcome, where no one is shut out. In this kingdom, it's the poor, those who mourn, those who are persecuted. These are the ones considered blessed. To the people of this day, to the religious leaders, even to Jesus' family and to his disciples, everyone had their own idea of what the kingdom would be like. And Jesus was having to teach them to to set aside these preconceived ideas. He was presenting an entirely new vision of the kingdom that God was establishing. And this new vision would come into direct conflict with the vision that many of them held. And this was heading for a violent end, and his family saw that. We are told that Jesus' mother and his brothers came to take charge of Jesus. They were convinced that he was headed off on a path that could only lead to destruction. Now, in today's lesson, we find Jesus once again with a large crowd gathered around him. Now, they've come for different reasons. Some of them have needs that they hope Jesus can help them with. They may need healing, for example. Others are probably there hoping to see a miracle, hoping to see something happen. In today's lesson, we see Jesus approached by two very different people. One is a man, an important man. He's a leader of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. He's at the top, really, of the society of that day. The other woman is in many ways his opposite. In fact, we are not even told her name. She remains anonymous. She's poor. She's a social outcast. She really is toward the bottom of society. But both of them have serious problems. Jairus' daughter is dying. This is why he comes to Jesus. The anonymous woman, she has a bleeding disease. She bleeds continually. And so they both come to Jesus And Jesus is able to show both of them he is, in fact, the Lord of life. And with these two interactions, Mark is revealing Jesus to us. Jesus is revealed as the Lord of life, one who has tremendous power, the power to heal, the power to help when no one else can. Mark shows us Jesus as the source of life for those who feel there is no hope those who have exhausted their other options. And so these interactions show us not only that Jesus has the power to change lives, but we see the compassion, the love of Jesus here. These are very personal interactions. Jesus, in fact, stops his public ministry to minister privately to these two individuals. He interrupts his day, what he's doing, Uh, what he's uh, doing with the crowds, to make time for these two particular people. Now, many of Jesus' miracles were done to demonstrate that he was the Messiah. They were signs for the people. They were done in front of everyone. These two miracles, they weren't really for public consumption. They were one-on-one interactions. So it's clear that Jesus recognizes these people as individuals, He has mercy and compassion on them specifically. They're they're not just faces in the crowd to him. Now, we see Jesus' ministry when it's in full swing. 
Jesus is crisscrossing the Sea of Galilee. He spends a day on this side of the lake, then he moves to the other side. But every time he lands, a crowd is there to meet him. And at times, this, this is a problem. Jesus is trying to be alone with his disciples. But over and over again, we are told that Jesus has compassion. And this compassion will not let him ignore the crowds. So many times, even when he wasn't necessarily planning to, when the crowds come, Jesus sees them as sheep without a shepherd. And his heart goes out to them and he begins to minister. When Jesus lands on the shore with his disciples, he's approached by Jairus. Jairus is a leader of the synagogue, and this tells us something important. It tells us, really, that Jairus is desperate. Now, by this time, Jesus is already attracting opposition from the religious leaders of the day. They have accused him even of blasphemy, uh, of having demonic powers. The Pharisees, as we mentioned earlier, have started to plot how they are going to kill Jesus. Jairus, as a leader in the synagogue, would be well aware of this opposition. For him to approach Jesus showed the links that he was willing to go to. His daughter is dying. In fact, she's at the point of death. And we learn later she dies while, while Jairus is in the process of getting help. But he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and he begins to plead with Jesus. He tells him, will you help me? My little girl, my little daughter is dying. So we can see that Jairus sees Jesus as his only hope. He says, come and put your hands on her so that she will live. And Jesus goes with him. Now, this was an interruption. This wasn't Jesus, something that Jesus had planned on. Jesus had plenty of other work to do, plenty of other people to minister to, plenty of people who were seeking his attention. But we see Jesus in his compassion here. He sees the desperation of Jairus, and he immediately goes with him. But the crowd follows him, and among the crowd, there is someone else who's in desperate straits. We're not told her name, but we are told her problem. This is a woman who has been suffering a, a condition of continual bleeding for 12 years. Now, we're not sure exactly why. I've read different speculations. Some have thought she might have had some type of cancer. Some have thought that it was a hormonal issue uh, with her hormones continually uh, not being in sync. But we know that no matter what was causing the bleeding, the fact that she was having this continual menstrual bleeding would have had ser very serious results for her. First of all, it would mean that she was infertile, that she could not have children. You know, today, women have many roles that they play in our society. And even today, children are important, and many women uh, really uh, like and love the fact that they have children. In Jesus' day, though, this was really the only role for women to play. They were mothers. A woman who could not have children was not really a woman. To many in society, she was less than what she should be. And throughout the Bible, we see the distress that was caused by women who were unable to have children. It Also, her condition would mean she was unable to have sexual relations with her husband. 
the law forbid these types of relations while a woman was menstruating. It would mean that there were physical consequences. She was probably anemic. This would make her weak and listless, you know, a constant feeling of being drained. But probably most importantly, this condition would have cut her off from interacting with others in daily life. Uh, she would have been ostracized because of this flow of blood. She was ritually impure, unclean. And it meant that anything she touched, anyone she touched, anything she sat on, these would become impure or unclean as well. And so this condition would have isolated her. It would have cut her off from the normal interactions of everyday life. Now, we can see her desperation. We are told that she has consulted many doctors. In fact, that she has spent all of her money and that she suffered under the care of these doctors. Now, in that day, going to the doctor was often a problem in itself. Doctors had little they could offer. Their knowledge was limited, and many times the treatment could be their own source of misery. A doctor might have you uh, consume some kind of concoction made out of owl's brains, frog livers, the eyes of a crab. And so uh, going to the doctor would mean exposing yourself to, to these types of treatments. But it was something that she had done and that she had paid for trying to get relief from this problem that was plaguing her. She fights her way through the crowd, and you can imagine the crowds pressing against Jesus. But she doesn't approach Jesus directly. She doesn't explain the problem. She doesn't ask Jesus for help. Remember, this condition made her impure. She was a source of contamination to everyone around her. And so you could imagine the uproar if someone uh, knows this about her. Uh, it would be impossible to be in the crowd without touching people. So, you know, would she have caused a backlash? Would the crowd have turned on her? Would Jesus himself have recoiled back from her? Many religious people would. But she settles on a plan. She won't ask Jesus for help, but she thinks to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his cloak. She sees in Jesus a man of such power that she thinks if I can come into contact with him, I'll be healed. No one else will have to know. We can see, you know, a faith, a confidence that somehow Jesus is the person who has the answer for her. And what we see is she is healed. We're told that immediately her bleeding stops. She feels in her body that she has been cured. She knows something has happened, something has changed. Now, we don't usually stop and think about how unusual this story is. Really, this is the only time where healing takes place just by being in the presence of Jesus. Now, we know that Jesus has healed from a distance before. Uh, we see the example of the centurion's servant. But most of the time, he heals by contact with the person, at least by speaking a word. In this case, the healing seems to take place without Jesus himself necessarily making the conscious decision to heal. 
It's almost as if this is taken from him. Her plan is to touch Jesus without his being aware of it. She'll receive her healing. She'll fade into the background. No one will ever need to know. So, in a way, she's planning to manipulate, to use Jesus. She's not asking. She, she is seeking to, to get this healing. And the thing is, it works. Healing power flows from Jesus' body. And so, I don't, I don't know quite how to interpret this. Uh, you know, we don't stop to think how different this really is. She's almost treating Jesus as a magic totem of some kind, an object with magical powers. But when Jesus sees her, he commends her for her faith. And I think this makes a difference in how we interpret her actions. She sees in Jesus someone who has such, uh, such spirit of God upon him, the spirit in such power and abundance, that she feels like, if only I can come into contact with him, with the Spirit of God that's on him, then I will be healed. And so really, this is the essence of her faith. I don't feel like she's treating Jesus like you know, a lucky rabbit's foot here. She is treating Jesus more as a living uh, receptacle of God's presence. Jesus as the embodiment of God's Spirit. But, of course, Jesus does know that she has touched him. He knows power has gone out from him. And so I don't think that, that this was something done against Jesus' will or against his consent. He could have prevented this if he chose to. But the way that Jesus handles this indicates that he understands there's something different about this touch. He stops and turns to the crowd and he asks, Who touched me? Now, his disciples, they don't see anything out of the ordinary. They point to the people crowding around Jesus everywhere, and they say, basically, who knows? Look at all these people. How, how are you going to know, or how are you not going to expect someone to touch you? They didn't realize what Jesus was talking about. This wasn't just an accidental touch from the crowd. But Jesus continues to ask. He's looking for the one who has touched him. And the woman comes forward. She admits to Jesus what she has done. And so we don't know why. We don't know why she didn't just fade away into the crowd. But there was something there that seemed to draw her to Jesus. The Bible tells us that she's fearful, trembling with fear. But she tells Jesus the truth. You know, did she see something in Jesus when Jesus looks at her? Does she see something in his face that says, it will be okay, I, I can admit what I've done? We don't really know, but we do know that she tells him everything. And Jesus responds to her, your faith has healed you. Now, we often miss the true meaning of faith. You know, we have the idea that faith is just wanting something really bad. It's whipping up an emotion, a feeling. But faith really is the embodiment of action. It's more than a feeling. It's a commitment to action. Her faith meant that she tried to do something. She tried to get as close to Jesus as possible, knowing that that would make a difference. And so Jesus tells her, he says, go in peace, be freed from your suffering. And so we see here 
The ultimate decision here is Jesus. Jesus is not used without his consent. He authorizes this. And so we see Jesus as the true Lord of life. Now, this wasn't a woman who was dying, but she was living in bondage and oppression. Her life was very stunted, but her encounter with Jesus, this brings her real life, true life. Jesus gives her two things, peace and freedom from suffering. Now, while Jesus is ministering to this woman, remember, Jairus is still standing there. He is a man in a hurry. When he came to get Jesus, he knew that time was short. His daughter was dying. And so he needs Jesus to come immediately. And so Jesus goes with him, but then Jesus stops. And we don't know how long he dealt with this woman, but it, it would have taken at least several minutes to do this. This was an extended conversation. And so you can picture Jairus standing there as the moments tick away and he becomes more and more desperate. He sees time running out. But we see something important about Jesus here. Jesus doesn't allow the outer circumstances to control him. Instead, he is completely in tune with the will of the Father, with doing what God has sent him to do. And so Jesus stays in God's timing. But then Jairus, his worst fears are realized. Before they can leave, word comes from his home. Your daughter is dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. In other words, it's no use. It's over. And so you can imagine that Jairus' heart, his heart sinks when he hears this news. But Jesus tells him, he says, don't be afraid. Just believe. And so here again, we see faith, but we see action. Jairus is faced with a choice. Does he listen to those who tell him it's no use, just give it up? Or does he believe in Jesus? And he continues to trust in Jesus. He continues to take Jesus with him. Now, Jesus here dismisses the rest of the crowd. He takes with him only Peter, James, and John. And so this is not something that's done for public consumption. It's something that's done for Jairus himself. When Jesus arrives at the home, he finds a scene of chaos and confusion. The crowd is crying, wailing loudly. And a lot of this is intentional. It was how you grieved in those days. In fact, uh, many times you could hire professional mourners it was their job to demonstrate uh, the grief of the occasion. And so part of this is intended to be a spectacle, uh, a display. And, uh, you know, we see this from the attitude of the crowd. There's mourning, and then when Jesus arrives and says that the little girl is not dead, they begin to laugh at Jesus. And so you can see the emotions shifting, and so you get the idea that that the display here is not really of grief, but it's just to create commotion. And so Jesus confronts them and says, she's not dead, she's asleep. Now, you, you could take this in two ways. Is Jesus being literal? Is the child really only sleeping? 
Or is Jesus using figurative language when he says asleep? There are some who thought that uh, the girl wasn't really dead, that she was more in a, a coma-like state. But most, most commentary, commentators believe that she is, in fact, dead, that when Jesus says asleep, this was a euphemism for death, and that the, the crowd would have understand that, understood that. You know, when Jesus uh, goes to raise Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, he also says to his disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. And in that case, Jesus clearly knew that Lazarus was dead, but he uses this word asleep. And the, the Greek word for sleep was often a euphemism for death. The Bible used the words sleep or to sleep when it's describing people who have died. So I think Jesus is making a point here that death is not what we usually think of it. But whether the girl is alive and they don't know that or whether she actually is dead, with Jesus on the scene, it makes no difference. Jesus has the power over death to bring her back, regardless of whether this is death or sleep. Now, it's interesting that the Bible doesn't tell us whether she is in fact raised from the dead or merely brought back from a coma-like state. Jesus tells her to get up, and she does. But when Jesus tells the crowd that she is asleep, the crowd firmly believes that she is dead. They laugh, they laugh at Jesus. They scoff. They mock. How foolish of Jesus to say this. Of course, the child is dead. They are going by what they see, by what they expect. And their expectations are deceiving them. But Jesus dismisses the crowd. He puts them outside. Uh, there's no room for them here. There's no use for them. They don't believe. And the truth is, even if they saw this miracle, they wouldn't believe if they didn't choose to. You know, we see the teachers of the law. They are exposed to all of the miracles that Jesus have done. They don't believe Jesus is the Messiah. Instead, they see Jesus as casting out devils through the power of Satan himself. So Jesus takes only the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and the parents into the room. Now, you can imagine the, the attitude of the parents. I'm sure they are hoping, but they're also probably fearful. You know, it's a, a situation of, I believe, but help my unbelief. Now, Jesus goes over to the girl. We're told she's about 12 years old. He takes her by the hand. Now, he doesn't have to do this. When he raises Lazarus from the dead, he merely speaks and Lazarus comes out. But Jesus makes this personal. He takes her hand. And when he speaks, it's interesting that the gospel writers leave Jesus' words in their original language. The gospels themselves are written in Greek, but Jesus didn't speak Greek. When he speaks to people, it would have been in Aramaic. And usually the gospels translate those words into Greek. But here, we are given the exact words, the Aramaic words that Jesus uses. He tells her, Talitha kumi. And the exact words are, little lamb, get up. 
This is a phrase, actually, that a mother might use to awaken a child in the morning. And so really, I think of it in that way. This is not a grand, dramatic moment, but I think it's similar to the way you might go, up, go into a child's bedroom to rouse them from sleep in the morning. You know, it's time to get up. And this is not, not a violent thing, a, a, an active thing, but Jesus is just gently bringing her back to life. And the girl stands up. She begins to walk around. She seems to be completely over, completely recovered, fully restored. And Jesus marks this by telling her or telling the crowd or telling the parents, give her something to eat. In other words, Jesus is saying she's here. She's back. She's ready for normal life to resume. And this leaves those watching completely astonished. You know, they, they were astonished that this girl had been brought back from the dead. Now, as we look at this, you know, we realize that Jesus came as the Messiah, as God's anointed one. He came to institute God's kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. This was God's plan all along to restore his creation, to restore the original state that had existed before sin, before man fell. You remember back in Genesis when God had created everything, he looked at it and he saw that it was good. When Jesus arrives on earth, he is born as a man to bring God's plan of redemption into full effect. This is the culmination of God's plan, to launch the kingdom of God into this world. As Jesus himself said, the kingdom of heaven is here. And Jesus spent his ministry demonstrating what this kingdom of heaven was like. All of those in Jesus' day, they were anticipating the Messiah. They were looking forward to it. But they all had their own ideas of what the Messiah would do. Jesus' ministry was to show what exactly the kingdom of heaven was like. He taught them about it, but he also demonstrated it through his life, through his miracles, through his daily interactions with all of those around him. And so today's lesson shows us two people who encounter the kingdom of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. They learn what it means to be part of this kingdom. They learn who Jesus is as the Lord of life, the Lord of true life, the Lord of real life. And from their encounter, we learn today because we too are part of Christ's kingdom. Through Christ, through the Lord of life, we can have real life. John 10.10 tells us in the words of Jesus, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This is the promise of the kingdom, that we can have the life that God planned for man all along, the promise of the Lord of life. So as we look at these two events, these two healings, what do they show us about the kingdom of heaven? First, we learn that Jesus is the only true source of life. Both of these people who met Jesus that day, the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus, both of them recognized their need for help. They were desperate. They realized they had no other options. Jesus was the only answer to what they needed. 
the woman with the continual bleeding found herself cut off from a normal, fulfilling life. She couldn't have children. She couldn't have a normal marital relationship with her husband. She was impure. She made those around her impure. She had tried other options. She had spent all of her money on doctors. Nothing had changed. Now she comes to Jesus, recognizing he is the only source of help for her. Jairus was seeing his daughter dying before his eyes. You know, when he comes to Jesus, again, the situation is desperate. In fact, he had waited too late before they can get back to her. She has died. And so Jairus is losing what's most precious to him. When we come to the kingdom, we enter the kingdom of heaven only by admitting our need, admitting that we need a Savior. You know, in the Beatitudes, Jesus told us, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And a big part of this blessing is, it is these people who recognize their need for Jesus, their need for a Messiah. Now, the woman with the bleeding, she had sought out the best technology, the best science that was available to her in that day. And you know, today, a lot of times, we pin our hopes on science and technology. But we're forced to realize that science, technology, gadgets, inventions, all of this, they're not going to provide the ultimate help that we need. If we are going to enter the kingdom, we have to recognize our need for Jesus. We can end up looking in so many other places, but ultimately, all of those are going to be empty. Second, we learn that our true need is to know, to have faith in the Messiah. Now, many times we come with an immediate problem that needs to be addressed. But the deeper problem, the real need, is for the Lordship of Christ in our lives. The kingdom is about uh, faith in Christ, recognizing Christ as the Messiah. The woman with the bleeding came with a very specific problem. And she thought she had an answer. She would touch Jesus' cloak. She would be healed. And that's exactly what happens. But Jesus takes this farther. The encounter doesn't end there. You know, her plan was to fade back into the crowd. Jesus doesn't allow this. Jesus continues to ask, Who touched me until the woman comes forward? And I think this was for a very specific reason. Jesus wanted the woman to realize he was not some kind of magical rabbit's foot. You know, he was not some kind of magical object that could be used. Jesus wanted her to understand. It was her faith, her faith in him as the Lord of life. This was what would heal her. Jesus did not drop the matter until there was a relationship formed between them. For Jairus, Jairus came to Jesus to get Jesus to save his daughter. But Jesus doesn't come right away. Instead, it seems like he deliberately takes time. He takes time to deal with this woman. He's waiting. It's similar to what happens in, La in the situation of Lazarus, where we're told that Jesus deliberately waits until Lazarus dies. I think Jesus wanted Jairus to have true faith, not just faith that Jesus could heal, 
but to understand Jesus could even bring back from the dead. Now, we often come to Jesus when we uh, have an immediate problem. We need help for a specific situation. But we have to realize life is always going to be about problems. When one problem is over, another is going to take its place. Circumstances change. And so we don't need help for just one particular problem. We need help that's going to last a lifetime. Our biggest problem is not to have our problem solved. Our biggest need is to have faith in the Messiah. You know, we often settle for something much smaller than this. We want a God that we basically treat as a genie in a magical lamp. We have a problem, we rub the lamp, the genie comes out, does whatever we need him to do, and then goes away. But God wants something much more than this. God wants us in a relationship with him. He wants us to be experiencing life in the kingdom, life under the lordship of Christ, that no matter what the outer circumstances are, we are members of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we also learn here from these encounters that Jesus is a Messiah, a Lord of life that we can trust. Both the woman with the bleeding and Jairus, both of them may have had initial misgivings about approaching Jesus, about whether they could really trust him or not. The woman with bleeding, she was a woman. Jesus was a man, a strange man. Jesus was a rabbi. She was an unclean woman whose touch made others unclean. She knew how most religious leaders would have reacted to her. Did she think that Jesus would be different? You know, at first it seems like she doesn't want to run that risk. She's going to touch his cloak without him being aware of it. But then evidently she sees something in Jesus that changes her mind, something that causes her to, to believe that Jesus can be trusted, that causes her to come forward. Now, Jarius, he was a religious leader. He knew the opposition that most of the religious leaders had toward Jesus. He knew how they saw Jesus. And so there again, it would have taken uh, something on his part to approach Jesus. And then after he learns Jesus or that his daughter is dead, he continues to trust that Jesus has the situation under control. If we're going to fully enter the kingdom, to have full faith in God, then we need to believe two things about God. First, we need to believe that God is great. That is, we need to believe God has the power, the strength to do what he says he will do. But we also need to believe that God is good. Not only can he do what he promises, but he will do what he has promised because he loves us. We think of the children's prayer, God is great, God is good. And that prayer packs a lot of truth into a few simple sentences. You know, when we truly believe these two facts, God is great, God is good, it makes a tremendous difference in how we live. We then can surrender everything to the Lordship of Christ, recognizing that in Christ, we not only have one who can do what we need, but one who loves us enough 
to do everything that we need him to do. In this part of Mark's gospel, we are presented with Jesus as the Lord of life. Jesus is bringing us into the kingdom of heaven, making possible a whole new type of life. Impurity is cleansed. A father's heartbroken grief is changed to a joy. A woman who is shunned by all is given a new start. A young girl with her life ahead of her is brought back from the dead. We see that this is what the kingdom of heaven is about. The kingdom of heaven is about life, a glorious life, an abundant life, a life far more than we ever thought possible. All of this made possible because of Jesus, the Lord of life. I want to close our lesson today with the prayer that Paul makes for the Ephesians from Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that God out of his glorious riches may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.